This is Sophie Wilson. You are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Hello, this is Linus Wilson. This episode was brought to you by our patrons. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. So I'm going to continue my reading of Slow Boat to Cuba about the first part of the Round the World trip. We last did a reading of that in episode 66 and then we just had a couple of passage logs or or about three passage logs in the last three episodes so i guess the one thing i'd say is that i've left australia i'm back in sweet home louisiana i think one of the the things that i find annoying about folks that uh show up in Tahiti and stuff and they think they've sailed around the world when in fact if you th- you look at the longitude they probably sailed like I don't know 5% of the world <laughs> distance or if they came from par- certain parts of the world I think for me by the time I hit Tahiti I'd only sailed 10% of the world I came from Louisiana it took it took me sailing across the Pacific Ocean across the Caribbean Sea through the Panama Canal to the Northern Territory of Australia and the Indian Ocean, Darwin, that's only 39% around the world based on the longitude method. So not even halfway. We'd have to, to get to halfway around the world, uh, we would have to get to, I think, Cocos Keeling Island, not even Christmas Island. I think Cocos Keeling Island would be almost halfway. So I think the plan for next year is to... to have kind of a shorter season. I was kind of exhausted from the Australian season. I think I'm going to, you know, just sail to Indonesia. I found a boatyard in uh, Indonesia, and uh, just east of Bali. And uh, I think that's what that's the destination for next summer. And then that will make the jump to Mauritius um, only 3,500 miles. I think it's less than 1,000 nautical miles to the boatyard in Indonesia. And, and so conceivably, I could do the, the Indian Ocean in two legs. I'm still trying to confirm that the boatyard in Mauritius will accept me. They've never returned my calls or emails. But I know they're there. So I, I think it's possible. Um, and Mauritius has a million people in it. I, you know, uh, Indonesia, so while uh, Australia has a population uh, of less than Texas, uh, Indonesia is like the fifth largest country, I think, something around there. Uh, it's, it's less population than the U.S., maybe less than Brazil. I think maybe Brazil's ahead of the U.S. in terms of population. But it's... It, Right on the doorstep of Australia, you have one of the most population-dense uh, nations in the world. And <clears throat> I don't think Lombok, where I'm going, is, is going to be super dense. But uh, I think the other issues, uh, I couldn't, I kind of had some hints there might be a place that I could go in Jakarta. But I don't think I want to go all the way to Jakarta because I think the shipping traffic is just going to be too great uh, near Jakarta. Uh, but I don't think, you know, east of uh, east of Bali, uh, where Lombok is, uh, I don't think it'll be too bad in terms of shipping traffic. And it's also should be still in the trade winds. Uh, so you have to kind of go to north, more north in Indonesia you, you go, then, then you could lose the trades. But I think the trades are still blowing, just not as hard 
as they were in uh, northern Australia, but uh, that we should have good winds uh, most of the way and uh, population center uh, population. So there's always a hope with population at least she can get diesel. So that th- so that sounds good for next summer. Um, I guess if you want to crew on it, you can try to contact me. You go to the YouTube channel, and I think there's a form you can fill out if you want to send me an email. Uh, we'll probably get one or two crew, look for one or two crew again. You know, it's just this, the labor shortage created by the, the great inflation of Jerome Powell uh, has has just, I, I think it's just made it really hard to get any crew uh, for anything. So like a volunteer crew is harder. Uh, getting workers is harder, uh, and so uh, in, until the great inflation turns into the great unemployment, I think it's going to be hard. it's going to be hard to get crew. Is is my guess. Uh, but you know, we solo sailed it most last year, and I'll continue to solo sail it if I have to this year. It's doable, uh, but I, I think we'll get crew. If you'd like, you want an adventure, you want to see Indonesia, see something exotic. I think they got some great animals. They got some great uh, geography in Indonesia. I think the the boatyard we're going to is like on the the slopes of a huge volcano. I think it's dormant, but it is is it is just like it's on the slopes of it. The volcano goes way up three thousand meters from the shoreline. Uh, it's a long walk there, but it it I so. That that's pretty substantial. So when I was when I had the after I got destroyed by the the midges at the boatyard that I was at in Darwin, uh, so I got I got hundreds of midge bites. It was just it was it was terrible. It's the worst experience in terms of um, bugs I'd had ever on the boat, or, or maybe ever. Uh, I had like an extra week. Uh, after I'd laid up the boat to hang out in Australia. So we, so I went and uh, climbed the tallest peak in Australia, and I think that's only about 2,000 meters tall, Mount Kosciuszko. It took me like an hour and a half. We took the chairlift. I had a guide, and uh, we trudged in the snow. Yes, there was snow in Australia. Yes, there was. It was wintertime. Uh, with the snowshoes, and that was uh, definitely the one of the easiest mountains I'd ever climbed uh, in my life. I tried a lot of mountains and failed on a lot of them, but that one was that was a good day. Uh, so yeah, so I think Indonesia is just uh, is a totally different animal than than uh, Australia. We're, it, I'm excited to to touch Asia. I would call Indonesia more Asia than I don't buy this whole Oceania concept. Uh, but you're right; it's not mainland Asia. But I think it'll be. I think it'll be interesting. Uh, and then probably the shortest season, uh, Jana would like to not come to the boat next year, uh, and she wanted to see Colorado. So we'll have a shortened season and a short short route uh, for next season. That's that's the hope. We'll see how it turns out. I'm still. I'm still debating. I I did pay for the the minder service of 
for the boat. I don't know if I'm going to go back to it over Christmas or not. I, I kind of debating that uh, given the mid situation. Probably would do it uh, without the mid situation. It's always kind of a it's, it's kind of a bummer though going after Christmas uh, because that's going to be the 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 cyclone season and so you're kind of in it during the cyclone season. I did that in. New Caledonia this last year. It was not the funnest time I've ever had trying to get a crossing, uh, but not a v- didn't get a visa to go to Australia then. Um, I did it in uh, Tonga. I, I actually did it in, in, in New Caledonia twice because of the, the, the fact that I wasn't a, right before COVID, and then I did it right after they stopped the COVID lockdowns. Uh, and then I think when I was in Tonga, there was a cyclone there. We just like, it was the scariest flight I was ever on. I thought we were going to crash, uh, because the, the pilot couldn't find the airport and he was running out of fuel, but somehow he was able to find the airport and land, uh, before we ran out of fuel. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's. You you add the the cyclones and the the midges, uh, so kind of cr- crappy weather to be on a boat, uh, especially on the hard. Uh, well, it's better to be on the hard during cyclone season, I guess, than in the water, right? But it's still not not the funnest experience uh, to do with your vacation, and it's expensive. So I don't know if I'm going to do it or not, given we're paying for the 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 minder service that that should air out the boat enough, should get the water out, but. I guess you don't know until you come back. We had a really good minder in Tonga. I think he did a good job. Um, we, I don't think that was. I think that was the only time we had a service prior to that. And uh, I don't know the guy that's doing it uh, in Darwin. He seems like a hard worker to me. So hopefully that'll go okay. Uh, so I guess I need to be at least thinking of the tickets to Indonesia. I think the other thing is Lombok is really far um, from the airport, right? It's just like, I think the airport may be like 70 miles, 90 miles or something uh, to the boatyard. Um, so that's going to be an adventure in itself to get there uh, uh, when we leave it there. Uh, but the island of Lombok does have like five flights a day. So uh, maybe more, 10 flights a day, which is quite a lot. I mean, that's more than New Caledonia does. But I guess it's, that makes sense because, you know, I mean, there's, I think, millions of people that live in the island of Lombok versus like 100,000, 150,000 that live in Grand Terre. Uh, Grand Terre is the big island in in uh, New Caledonia. All right, so I'm going to give you, uh, I think, chapters, before we had chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. That was episode 66. So go back to episode 66 if you want to hear it. Uh, episode 65, we had 5, 6, 7, and 8. And then uh, I think uh, like very far back, we had the early chapter of Slobo to Cuba. So I'd have to go back in the, the podcast episodes. But you scroll back in there and you'll get to hear the whole thing from the start. So if this is like you never heard the the prior chapters of slow boat to cuba you can hear it from the beginning you just need to go back in the podcast uh to find it uh so yeah i think it was episode 28 where we started slow boat to cuba and so we're still doing that so my plan is to give you the episodes for slow boat to cuba uh, until we are done uh, about an hour at a time and i think we'll probably have one more episode of slow boat to cuba and and 
Then after that, I'm not sure what we're going to put on the podcast. Uh, I may continue reading uh, the, uh, I think, uh, one of the classic books that I, I was reading to you earlier. Um, but uh, I think all the other audiobooks that I've recorded so far are on Audible, and I cannot I cannot rebroadcast them now that they're on Audible. But Slobo to Cube is not on Audible. That's why we're putting it free for the the podcast listeners. But you can also, I think you can buy it. I have to. I, I think there'll be links in the description where you can buy the f- full thing if if you'd like to buy the full thing. I think um, Gumroad maybe we might have it on Gumroad right now. All right, enjoy uh, the. I think starting with chapter thirteen of Slobo to Cuba, and I think we'll go up to chapter fifteen. I'm Linus Wilson. Have fun on the water. Here, here's the audiobook. Slobo to Cuba by Linus Wilson. Chapter thirteen: Cuban Time Warp. After we anchored, a Canadian flag sailboat dropped the hook three miles away in the southwest corner of the Ensenada. I hailed them, and the skipper, Marty, said, I left some room for you to swing. We left late at 10.30 a.m. I finished recording episode 16 of the podcast so I could upload it when we got to civilization. The sailboat from Quebec had left a little before us. Last night, Marty said they were bound for Cayo Largo. That was a long way with a late start. I was still fooling with transferring the podcast to the iPhone when Stevie helmed around the outer rim of the Ensenada de los Barcos, following the chart's dashed line to Nueva Girona. While I was busy, I did not realize how much the three-foot swell on the nose was staggering our progress. We were motoring into the wind with a single reef in the main and no Genoa out. We were barely making three knots. Marty hailed to say what a hard time they were having making way against the swell. I decided that heading southeast in the lee of the shoreline would improve our speed. I thought that the distance was about 10 miles after we left Ensenada de los Barcos. I asked Stevie at the helm to estimate the distance, and he said we were two miles from the entrance channel. I was right, unfortunately. I decided to tack toward shore. The hope was being somewhat in the lee of the land would cut the waves down and allow us to make better progress east. It worked, and our speed rose from 3 to 4.5 knots. We came into the well-marked channel and filmed and photographed it with its high hills. This section of the trip can be seen in our YouTube channel's episode entitled Season 1, Episode 4, Nueva Verona, Cuba, Sailing Back in Time. There were two guys fishing in inner tubes in three to four foot swells near the outermost buoy. Cubans are true adventurers. We motored up the Rio Las Casas past the Garda Frontera office and the oil factory with the picture of Che Guevara on the West Bank. While Stevie helmed, I frantically put out the fender board on the starboard side in anticipation of docking front first with the starboard side tie. The ferry dock was on the western shore, which was the starboard, with us heading south down the river. I took the helm as we got closer. I had been told that the sailboats were directed south of the ferry dock, but we were told to tie up on the north end. This went fine. 
The high concrete pier had huge tractor tires that Cheryl Barr directed us to make a fender board for. If we let the tractor tires touch the hull, we would have terrible marks that would be difficult to scrub off. The fender board would keep our hull off the tires and the board would get the tire marks, not Contango's fiberglass hull. Of course, once we had a fender board in the perfect spot, the landlubber Garda Frontera officer injected his two pesos nationale, two cents, that we tightened the bow line, which would undo all our efforts with the fender board. I declined to follow up on his suggestion. He was a jolly but very sweaty fellow. He took our dispatcho and would return it on May 19, 2016, when we intended to leave a couple days hence. We would never see him again, but we would get the dispatcho back. He smirked as he said he could not make 10 kook $13 change for a 50 kook $57 note. I gave him 45 cash instead, which was roughly equivalent to our two-night 40 kook dockage fee in Nueva Girona after the 13% tax on U.S. dollars. I think since locals did not pay the tax, it was possible for him to pocket $5, but I was no worse off from the transaction relative to paying 40 kooks. There was no reason to complain. Our placement at the north end of the dock made our activities on the strange boat even more conspicuous to prying eyes of las socialistas. We were right next to some sort of office which always had someone coming and going during the day. In addition, the ferry dock was under 24-7 security. It felt a bit odd to roam the town with Stevie since we were separated almost the entire time since we were in Venice. He worked on his project, and I worked on getting the boat ready in our last port in the USA. We slept most of the time while the other was awake on passage. We got Wi-Fi cards at the Exta store. They would only sell them to Stevie because he was the only one to bring his passport. They would only accept my kooks since Stevie did not change his dollars in Cabo San Antonio. We both burned our two coop per hour cards under the shade of the trees where we saw the most smartphones in use. I uploaded the podcast and gave Stevie five coop more to get me another card for me and him. The main business street was Calle 39, which was a brick-lined pedestrian street where many locals would stop to watch the day go by in the early evening. Unlike the Bahamas, where it was hard to walk anywhere where you could not see a group of men drinking at 10 a.m. I was impressed by the sobriety and industriousness of the Cubans that I saw. It was a working town where everyone seemed to have a job that they took very seriously. Children went to school and parents went to work. Perhaps that was the difference between a big island and a small one in the Bahamas. A big island, people lived their life. There was no party island life culture. I went back to get my passport. It was only a 15-minute stroll back to the boat. When I came back, Stevie was not at the hotspot, so I bought a Wi-Fi card for myself. Stevie eventually came by and introduced me to Judy and her friend. Judy spoke slowly in Spanish so that I could understand much of what she said. Stevie needed no tutelage because of his backpacking in Central America. Judy's family owned a white truck from the 1950s that we paused by while Daly was mobbed by well-wishers when we first entered the city. Cubans are like everyone else in the world. They are amazed at how cute Daly 
the four pound poodle is. There were many mangy, hungry, stray dogs, and I picked up daily whenever any one of them got within 15 feet of him. Perhaps the folks in the Cayman Islands had a legitimate concern that rabies was not well controlled in Cuba. I left daily in the boat after I got my passport. What struck me right away was that most people seemed to walk or bike in Nueva Gerona. There were horse-drawn carriages with extremely underfed horses if you had loads to haul or did not want to walk. There were at least two horses with carriages for every car. I asked Judy to suggest a place to eat. She steered us to the first restaurant that I had seen 10 minutes after leaving the boat. Despite her prodding of the staff, it took over an hour for any food to emerge from the kitchen. Life moved slower in Cuba. When I used the bathroom at the restaurant, I noted that there was no toilet seat. I never found a toilet seat in Nueva Gerona. Stevie and I were stuck with the bill for Judy and her friend, a fisherman on a 40-foot boat. I found the pescadores, the fisherman's Spanish, unintelligible. I had four years of Spanish in high school and felt I got by okay by myself in Spain when I had visited Madrid, Barcelona, and Seville many years back. I could read Spanish okay, form a sentence, but verbal comprehension was minimal for me. With Stevie along, invariably, communications went through him. Chapter 14, Jumping Ship In the morning, I went into town while Stevie slept. I checked out the farmer's market with Daly and bought some tomatoes. I needed more Wi-Fi cards, and Stevie never gave me the two-kook one that I gave him five-kook for. I waited for an hour the next day with Daly mostly in the hot sun outside the store. Many Cubans used umbrellas to fend off the rays. I asked for one card for me and another for mi amigo, and asked about cell phones and phone cards. They convinced me that Wi-Fi was really the only way to go for voice communications, but Jana and I struggled the previous night to connect on Skype. The TunnelBear VPN allowed me to get past the U.S. embargo, which blocked computers from Cuba accessing many of the most popular internet portals. Nevertheless, the Wi-Fi speeds were not good enough to speak for any length of time. Stevie was unable to speak with his girlfriend over WhatsApp, the popular voice via internet communications platform. Stevie wanted to hike up one of the prominent hills on Isla Juventud, and I originally expressed interest in the excursion. Nevertheless, I was a little afraid for my safety, and the thought of going off into the hills with some Cubans who sought me out on the street seemed risky. Since we seemed to be the only tourists there, I felt like at best I would be expected to pay for everything with Stevie, in addition to the expenses of any Cubans who hung along for the trip. On the downside, I could be robbed or worse. Judy's cousin, who spoke English several times, tried to convince me to go to the disco or the bar with ladies to buy cigars. This struck me as a bad idea at 10 p.m. when I'm usually in bed. Further, Judy's sticking us with the bill for dinner signaled to me that we were not seen as friends. At best, Judy or her cousin wanted to act as guides, but they never made that arrangement explicit. I really just wanted to explore on my own. As it turned out, Stevie did have a good and inexpensive tour. 
he did get a free meal and bought an inexpensive one. I'm not sure it would have gone that way had I tagged along. I don't look like a penniless backpacker. I was a middle-aged gringo. Besides, it was Stevie's birthday, and that was a good excuse for the locals to invite him in. Stevie had been living on people's couches for several years. Meeting new people and getting invited into their homes was what he did best. When I was his age, I was learning about game theory and financial and economic modeling at Oxford University. He was honing his skills at couch surfing in Latin America. He was in his element, I was not. While Stevie toured the abandoned prison, Presidio Model, and hiked up La Loma, I worked on the engine. By all reports, we both sweated it out. I changed the oil and tightened the belts on the diesel engine. Boat maintenance probably was as big a factor in my not going on the hike as any fears about the hyper-friendliness of Cubans we met. The security guards at the dock had a running joke and kept stopping by to ask for refrescos after they saw me strolling the first evening with a beer in hand. Stevie and I kept giving them water. It was a little creepy to me to have the security guards continually visiting the boat asking for handouts. But I think they just saw it as a fun joke and were not really serious. One requested a beer. I said he could drink a beer with me on the boat, but he couldn't take it to go. He declined to step on board. I suspected that his apprehension had to do with prohibitions from the Cuban government preventing locals from getting on foreign boats. Nevertheless, I was not running a convenience store. I got a sandwich outside the ferry terminal. When I was charged three pesos nationale more than the posted rates, I protested that the vendor was shortchanging me. A prolonged discussion ensued in my broken Spanish. The vendor relented and gave me a little change back after I said, Tu corazón es malo, which in my mind meant your heart is bad. Still, being overcharged one peso nationale meant only paying pennies too much. There were 24 pesos nationale per kook. Each peso nationale was worth about four or five cents. I was careful to only use small bills or change after that. Judy's cousin found me again, and instead of trying to get me to go to the bar to buy cigars, he wanted me to give him three kook for one dollar. I declined to lend him the money. I searched all day for something to make a birthday cake while Stevie was gone, and I toured the shopping possibilities in town. I finally found a bakery open at 7 p.m. with frosted cake. I wanted to buy a cake, if possible, because the heat was too great to use the oven on the slow boat. When Stevie returned that evening, he brought tales of his tours and the visits with his newfound friends. He brought a tall bongo drum that was given to him by someone he met. I was very skeptical about Judy and her cousin and my treatment with the sandwich vendor. Moreover, I remembered how the fishermen that Stevie sang for were asking for a new GPS in Cabo San Antonio. I felt that the bongo drum was a classic gift for an unwitting drug mule. There was little I feared more than having a crew member who got me unwittingly mixed up in drug smuggling. I had asked all my crew candidates about their marijuana use and rejected a few crew candidates just because I suspected that they may have done more than experimented with marijuana. I told all potential crew members that I had a zero tolerance policy for illegal drugs on board or ashore while they were a crew member of Contango. I had little faith in Stevie's instant friends, 
and I thought it was more likely that unscrupulous people would latch on to him and me quickly. I was also not happy to transport another large instrument. On the entire trip, there were only three times he got out his guitar. Dauphin Island, Alabama, Pensacola, Florida, and Cabo San Antonio, Cuba. But it took up a berth on the whole trip. A guitar is fragile, and it cannot be crammed into spaces or have anything stacked on it. I doubted the bongo drum would get more use. Since it was a birthday gift, I thought of a compromise. It was assembled by screws. I proposed that if he wanted to keep it, we had to inspect it for drugs by removing the screws and looking under the top of its hollow inside. Stevie declined the inspection and said he would return it to his new friend. I gave him the cake and he returned the drum that night, getting in late. Stevie was unhappy about my questions about the bongo drum. In the morning, I worked on refilling the water tanks. Bar's cruising guide said there was no potable water except in expensive bottles at Cayo Largo, our only other inhabited stop. Thus, I should fill the tanks with the Nueva Gerona city water. The Rio Las Casas stunk of sewage, but I asked the locals if they drank the water, and they said that they did. I tested some tap water with my total dissolved solids meter, TDS, for the water maker, and by drinking, it seemed okay. Unfortunately, I dipped the TDS meter too low and ruined its electric parts. It would never work again, and I had no spare. I first tried the bathrooms in the offices right next to our boat. There was nothing like a hose fitting, and I could not efficiently get water into the blue jerry can. I regretted not having a funnel exclusively for drinking water. A man from the office got very spirited about what he was saying, trying to convince me to buy bottled water. I thought he was saying that he drinks the water, but tourists should drink bottled water. Nevertheless, he was so agitated, and my comprehension is so suspect, that I woke Stevie to translate. That was his interpretation, too. Stevie and my philosophy was that if the locals drank the water, it was safe to drink. Besides, we used an activated carbon filter at the tank. I think using bottled water does not guarantee water safety, but it is expensive, cumbersome, and wasteful in terms of useless plastics. Unfortunately, this interrupted Stevie's sleep routine of typically sleeping until noon when we weren't on passage. The ladies in the kitchen of the offices next to the boat insisted on trying to fill the can in the kitchen. This would not work. Someone at the ferry dock directed me to a small PVC pipe next to the Batabano ferry that had city water. It was easy to fill the jerry can with this good-tasting water. Unfortunately, I had to share this tap with someone washing the car of the captain of the Bontabano Ferry. The captain of the ferry did introduce himself in English and said he had a hose adapter for the PVC pipe which I could use. I tried using it while the man washing down the car was drying it off, but my hose was not long enough without moving contango. By this time, I only had a few more trips with the jerry can, and I did not move the slow boat despite the urging of several at the dock. A nice old man found me a pallet on wheels so that I did not have to carry the 50-pound load. That helped on the last couple trips in the sun. Around lunchtime, I asked Stevie to help me carry the five empty diesel cans to the gas station. 
The gas station was on one side of the square and only a hundred yards from the Wi-Fi hotspot. I figured since they were empty, having him carry them to a place he was already going would not be a burden. I did not want to use the horse and buggies, which were everywhere, because I did not want to support drivers who allowed their animals to nearly starve. The horses of the horse and buggy drivers had ribs showing and were as emaciated as any animals that I had ever seen. I thought it would have been wasteful to get a car to drive me in the five cans, but I regret not doing so. It started raining on the way, and we checked the internet while we waited for the rain to let up. It was still sparkling when we got there. Stevie did not like that I asked him and the lady manning the pumps to wait for me to wipe off the cans and the nozzles before filling them. When I countered, you've never rebuilt a carburetor. I have. I know how important it is not to get water in the fuel. He was furious after that. My meaning was that there are consequences that I personally pay for in terms of repair time if I allow contaminated fuel to enter the boat. Rebuilding a carburetor or any other engine service is time-consuming. He took it as an insult to his skills, which was not my intent. Water in the fuel can harm the engine or lead to a stall at an unlucky moment where a wreck cannot be avoided. He left before I finished, and I asked that he return to the boat by 3 p.m. so we could leave for a nearby anchorage on the way to Cayo Largo, as we had arranged with the Garda Frontera. This was the first time that I had asked Stevie to help me prepare the boat for departure. I think he felt that he had no responsibilities in port, and my asking him to help out was out of bounds. I primarily did not ask crew to help with water or fuel because the consequences of a crew member mistaking fuel for water fills was so dire. I had read of many instances of this mistake ruining cruises. With no marine services in Cuba crippled by the embargo, we could not afford to make such mistakes. I took an old car back from the 1950s for about five kook or six dollars. After tying up the fuel cans, I turned on the GPS and autopilot, but unfortunately the autopilot would not come on. I threw out all the extra sails in the hatch and checked the connections. Stevie came by and he said he wanted to leave the boat. I said I thought it was an impulsive decision brought on in part by his tiredness after waking him that morning. I thought we were getting along well overall. I said it would be very difficult for him to get to the Cuban mainland from Isla de Juventud. The Bantabano ferry to mainland Cuba was difficult for international tourists to get tickets, and the airport was continually booked according to the Lonely Planet Cuba guide that I showed him. I feared that a crew change would delay the trip weeks and asked him to stay on two more days until we could reach Cayo Largo, which was a resort with international tourists. I believed that he could more easily fly home from Cayo Largo because Barr's guide said crew changes are possible at Cayo Largo. I let him read both sources. Stevie agreed to stay on to Cayo Largo. He then went off to hit the Wi-Fi one last time. I was in the starboard hatch where the autopilot's connections were when the Garda Frontera officer came by. She was young and thin unlike our first representative. 
I asked her to come back in an hour when I hoped that Stevie would return. He was there. Our AIS alarm went off while she was there. The Garda Frontera officer asked that we not depart prior to the departure of the 3.30 p.m. Batabano ferry. I readily agreed since I had no desire to be in front of the ferry when it was moving out of the river. The Garda Frontera officer checked us out and we said our next port of call was Cayo Largo on the Despacho. The nice old bearded man who lent me the cart for the water tossed the lines at 3.45 p.m. In the windless but stinky Rio Casas, we motored forward and did a 360-degree turn. No problems. As a few fishing boats passed in the river, I plotted a quick course for the Cayo Quitasol, which was a suggested anchorage with east winds. I thought better of that anchorage because it was so close to the Paso Quitasol. I feared that there might be boats that confused our anchor light for the channel markers for the popular pass. I passed Punto Colombo and its high hills and thought we would be better off anchoring west of this point or in the next bay on Isla Juventud. Both indents on Isla de Juventud's north coast had high hills blocking east winds. We currently face 10 to 15 knot east winds. I worried a little about catabatic winds off the hills, but not enough to keep me from attempting to anchor near them. We dropped the hook in the next bay behind the rise in Punta Bibijagua. We had protection on three sides instead of just one side near Pasaquitosol. Only the north was not protected. We dropped 500 feet from the shallow mark on the plotter. The seagrass made the water all seem dark and unreadable. We put out 10 to 1 scope or 120 feet of snubber and chain. Hazards were 0.3 miles away and no boats would anchor there that night. I pulled out the sails from the hatch and realized that the external control unit for the autopilot was the only thing not lighting up. I reinserted its Talk connectors and it came back on. Hooray! My other hunches of popped out connectors on another of the autopilot's different control or drive units, an extremely low brightness setting, or a blown fuse all turned out to be bad guesses about the source of the problem. I took a Caribbean shower. While the water was clear, the bottom was grassy, and many fine white particles appeared to be floating in the water. They were too ill-defined to be jellyfish. They were likely some man-made pollutant that we could not identify. I saw two kayakers in the bay and thought it was wise to pull up the boarding ladder. Everyone has seen pictures of Cubans trying to flee on makeshift rafts to the USA. Much of the Cuban regulations of cruising boats was in part to make it harder for Cubans to steal or find passage on cruising boats or their dinghies. I was tired of cooking and cleaning for Stevie after he said he would jump ship. In addition to my other duties, I was the cook. Stevie showed no inclination to wash half the dishes, and I never pressed him on the point. I did mention that he should flush the head as he was leaving smelly urine in the bottom of the bowl. I made dinner for myself, and I let him make whatever he wanted. Chapter 16. The Marina at Cayo Largo del Sur. 
As we came into the new, deeper channel, which took a more circuitous western approach to the marina at Cayo Largo, we snapped pictures of the big cat, Ivadel, under sail. I tried to hail them to give them the picture, but they did not respond to the hail. This was the third time I had tried to hail a boat after taking their picture. Each time, the skipper or crew never picked up on VHF-16. It is really hard to get a picture of your boat under sail without an expensive and easily crashed drone or another boat taking a picture for you. More folks should do this simple good deed for their fellow boaters. But to receive this gift, the boats under sail have to respond to the VHF. Not only did these boat owners miss out on a great picture, they were not fulfilling their legal requirement to monitor VHF-16. Pire, the marina manager, had said we could have whatever slip we wanted over the VHF. We came in and docked on the empty pier on the east side at the very end. Still, I made a hash of the docking into this last double slip. It did not matter. Stevie jumped down with the stern line, and I eventually tossed him the bow line. We were facing perpendicular to the direction we wanted to go, until Stevie reeled in the bow line to straighten us. The man who helped us with the dock lines also checked us in in lieu of the regular Garda Frontera officer. I liked the very relaxed Cayo Largo. Tourists rarely appeared, mostly to board a dive boat. For the most part, Stevie and I had the $2 Wi-Fi cards and $1 beers to ourselves at La Taberna which was the coolest place during the day and had the best Wi-Fi signal. On our first day, May 21st, we met Marty and Susan, who we hailed way back in Ensenada de los Barcos. They were from Quebec, but spoke good English and were planning to sail for Grand Cayman, about 150 miles due south, when the weather was right. I talked to Marty about the boat's charging issues. He said we really needed a high-output alternator. Our engine standard alternator would only charge at low voltage. A high-output alternator could charge at over 14 volts, but the Hitachi alternator would be lucky if it could charge at 13 volts. Charging at 12.6 volts was a better guess in my experience. Since a full battery had a charge of 12.8 volts, our old alternator could not charge a full battery it only could charge one that was lower than 75% full. While eating our $3 chicken dinner at the bar, I also mentioned our problems with the stern solar arch and our need to weld the connections. Marty said he was set up to weld stainless. He quoted me a price of $60 per hour of labor for about four hours and $150 per four hours of argon gas. That seemed reasonable and much more accommodating than the welders who quoted the job in New Orleans. I had to anchor out for him to do the work. He believed working on it in the marina would draw the ire of the Cuban authorities. I was still not sure about when we would leave. I was hoping to leave on the 23rd of May. If we stayed longer, we might have time. I had to do engine maintenance and get fuel before we headed south. I was not sure that left enough time to meet Marty at anchor and do the welding. PassageWeather.com made Friday, May 27, 2016 seem like a better departure day with potentially lighter winds and smaller seas 
of about a meter if we delayed versus one to two meters if we left on May 23rd. I paid for the slip until May 23rd, and the marina manager, Pure, said that the marina water was definitely not potable. It smells of sulfur and is very nasty, he said. Pire is multilingual, and his English is excellent. He confirmed that no Cubans drank the water. I also paid for 60 liters, 15.9 gallons of diesel, so I could participate in a daily 7.30 a.m. opening and closing of the fuel dock on May 22nd. It was a guess, but we had to prepay, and I was still thinking ahead to the May 23rd departure. I woke early the next day. I had to top off the fuel tanks and walk my empty cans to the fuel dock. I only had two and a half empty cans, 50 liters, and thus overpaid for 60 liters of diesel. I rushed across the island past the workers' apartments, trying to get to the entrance of the fuel dock on land. I observed the line of masts first leaving the marina and heading to the fuel dock. At about 8 a.m., I arrived at the land entrance to the fuel dock, which was in a little bay. Unfortunately, the chain link fences gate was locked. As much as I yelled and made noise, the fuel pump guys 60 feet away did not hear me. It was clear that some folks had jumped this fence before, and there was a bent over section that was three feet high that you could stand on. I threw the cans over the fence and stepped on the bent over section. The guys at the pump were still taking care of the last catamaran when I came up. After I showed them my receipt, they filled my cans. They said the catamaran could transport the fuel cans back to the marina. I jumped aboard, but the catamaran's crew signaled that I had to leave the cans and I could pick them up at the marina. I could not travel with them. I thought that was not a good idea since those cans were impossible to replace and took them back to the dock. I would slowly walk them back to Contango. The guys at the pump opened the gate and flagged down a bus for me to ride to the Taberna. That was awesome because I could not carry more than two 20-liter jerry cans when they were full. When I was dropped off, Pire had a muscular guy help me carry them back to Contango. The big guy refused to tip. I finally discovered the freshwater leak at the galley filter and tightened the leaking hose clamp. Only with the wind generator silent and the batteries fully charged from shore power did I realize the French water pump was running continuously. By this time, there was no telling how much water drained out. It was pretty likely that the bladder was wiped out, but I had no idea how much remained in the aluminum tank, and its meter had been unreliable since we bought the boat. With no way to refill the tanks, we may have to violate our U.S. Coast Guard permit, which specified Cayo Largo as our last port of call just to fill our water tanks. Jana suggested that I test how much water was in the 70-gallon tank with a, quote, dipstick. You could not open it up and look inside, but the gauge had a one-quarter inch hole that a stick could be put in. By touching the bottom, I could see how much of the stick got wet and thus how full the tank was. This was easier said than done. There were five screws holding the gauge to the tank. They were not traditional screws. They could not be turned with any socket wrench or screwdriver. Ideally, you would have tiny socket wrenches to turn them, but none fit. I had to find a tiny adjustable wrench that I could turn four out of the five. After many hours and many buckets of sweat, I used the dipstick method. I put a small wire in the screw holes and tested how deep it went. Where the first foot on the top of the tank was roughly a triangle with the top being cut off. 
I estimated the water was close to seven inches from the top of the tank. Using some rough geometry, I estimated that there was 38 gallons remaining in the 70-gallon tank. I told Stevie that we would probably sail for Sinfuegos to refill our water the next day. I told Peary about our planned departure, and he said to wait until the morning to get it. Peary warned that Sinfuegos Marina probably would be full of charter boats. Nevertheless, I spoke to a German skipper of a chartered Beneteau 423 who said there were plenty of available slips. Anchoring in Sinfuegos was a possibility. Peary had confirmed that water at the marina in Sinfuegos was potable. Going upwind 100 miles in near calm conditions forecast overnight on May 23rd seemed preferable than crossing the Caribbean Sea with too little water. I believe that I could deviate from the U.S. Coast Guard permit if it was in the best interest of the safety of the boat and crew. Backtracking 100 miles to Nueva Verona would take 200 miles and probably another tough upwind slog. Going to Sinfuegos was the quicker way to Panama than backtracking to Nueva Verona. I told Marty that we would do the welding in the afternoon before departing in the late afternoon for an overnight sail to Sinfuegos. Stevie had spoken to Enrique that night, who I had not yet met. Enrique said he could sell us seven liters of water for $4 in very large quantities. I declined because I thought the price was outrageous, over $2 per gallon. In the morning, I called the mega yacht Lady L on the Channel 16. That mega yacht was Cayman Island flagged. It was docked by the Taberna in the marina. My theory was that the Lady L had such a high-capacity water maker for its huge tanks that they might be able to be convinced to sell us some water. I could transport 40 gallons easily in my portable water bladder tank. Lady L, Lady L, this is a sailing vessel Contango, over. Tango, this is Lady L. We would like to buy some potable drinking water from you. Tango, we can give you some drink. Stand by. A few minutes later, they came on the line. Tango, come to the starboard stern. I brought the 40-gallon bladder with the hose attachment to the stern of Lady L on a cart with some extra hose. A British-sounding man in his 40s came around and took our hose and assured me, It has been through five filters on the boat. I filled the tank, and he pointed to a hose from the marina, which was the source of the water. One person who had visited the marina asserted on a post that I put on Facebook that the Taberna had potable water. Thus, I thought it was possible that Lady L had paid for a better arrangement than all the other boats in the marina. Nevertheless, I was hoping for water maker water and was skeptical about any hose at the marina. I was about to fill the 70-gallon tank with this water when I thought I should try to test it by drinking it first. Thus, I drank some of the bladder water prior to filling the tanks. I found it strange. I was sweating buckets, but I did not find that it quenched my thirst. My only TDS meter was broken, so I could not test for the salt or mineral content, but I suspected it was high. I took a sample of the tank water from the galley. It quenched my thirst. I had Stevie try a sip of the good tank water and the bad water we got from it, Lady L. Later that day, I had diarrhea. This was the only time during the trip that I suffered ill effects from, quote, drinking the water locally. 
I dumped the entire contents of the bladder into the sea. I am so glad that I did not contaminate it with water from the Lady L. The whole experience made me lower my estimation of the skipper and crew of the Lady L. Luckily, by this time, Phoebe had found the only toilet with a seat that we saw in all of Cuba. It was one of the two behind the bar. Unfortunately, the door was often locked. Enrique came up with a better offer on the morning of our departure. He could supply two kook per nine liters of water or just under one dollar per gallon. I bid on this offer and said that I would buy 180 liters or about 48 gallons for 40 kook. I felt obligated by my permit to consider alternatives to sailing to Cienfuegos. I calculated that I would spend 45 kook in fuel getting there, so spending 40 kook on water was also cost effective. Soon after, Enrique raised his price via Stevie to 3 kook per 9 liters. I rejected this because I felt like he was not being true to his agreement. Stevie relayed the message that Enrique only had 99 liters and he would only accept a price of 250 kook per 9 liters. I declined this again through Stevie. Stevie said Enrique wanted a tip. I said I would give him a 5 kook tip for the 180 liters at the price of 40 kook that we agreed on since hauling water was heavy. I was ready to depart and if I had seen Enrique first, I would have declined to buy the water because he had changed his prices. Nevertheless, when I returned to the boat, Stevie had already loaded 99 liters, 11 six-packs of 1.5 liter water bottles. After Stevie had shown so much initiative, I paid 25 kook, a three kook tip, and said I would stay in Cayo Largo until departing for Panama by way of Providencia, Colombia. With 26 gallons added to the 38 gallons we already had, I reasoned that we should have enough to get to Providencia. With our tender solar arch and wind generator pole, I was inclined to wait a few days for lighter winds and one to two meter waves. My goal was to get to Panama with the least repairs to the boat needed as possible. Paying $5 for fuel every two hours seemed like a lower shadow cost than braving big waves and having something almost surely break. After Friday, May 27, 2016, the persistent Colombian low would disappear, making wave heights closer to one and a half to one meters on the route to Providencia, according to PassageWeather.com. I asked Piri if we needed a dispatcho to anchor out near Playa Serena. He said we did not. My plan was to spend a few days at anchor and recharge the batteries by returning to the marina on our last night in Cayo Largo. We threw off the dock lines at 1 p.m. The whole water negotiations made us late for our 8 a.m. welding appointment with Martin. We bumped into him a few times and explained our tardiness when he took his dinghy into the marina. All right, that was the chapters uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Slobo to Cuba. We'll finish this off in the next month, probably in September 2022. I'm Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Bye-bye.